Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Rooms interview with uh, Joe Labriola, who on his YouTube channel is identified as Professor Labs, an expert in education, environment, and entertainment, a true Renaissance man, if ever I knew one. Uh, he has a podcast, he has his YouTube channel, he's a creative writer, uh, he's also a composition instructor. So Joe, you wear a lot of hats. Um, I don't know where to begin with you, but where are you broadcasting from right now? We could start there. Well, first of all, it's funny that you say I wear a lot of hats because I do. Actually, I'm a big hat collector guy. Uh, but I have to have you introduce me to my classes for now on because that was fantastic. I'll take that every time. Thank you. I don't know about that. Only villains wear hats. <laughs> this is well known. Well, this is why I have many of them. <laughs> then I'm maybe worried, that's a bad I'm, sign. I'm worried what we're unleashing on the internet community. This is this is true. Um, I am uh, I am recording from uh, it, well, it looks like the beach because that's the virtual background that I always use for all of my classes, actually, um, which I think they like, but you know, you never know. But uh, yeah, um, I guess uh, Port Jefferson, New York. Um, so couple towns over from where I mainly teach, which is Stony Brook University in New York. Yeah. And, and skip and jump from where I am right now. And once yeah. again, you teach creative writing. I'm sorry? You teach creative writing? At uh, well, so that's the thing. I've taught creative writing. I haven't recently so much um, for various reasons. Um, obviously, there's all sorts of considerations uh, with scheduling in, in terms of what you can be offered, what you have time to actually teach, uh, all that sort of stuff. So uh, I haven't actually taught creative writing uh, in probably a couple of years now. Um, so I've mostly been teaching, um, actually mostly technical writing. Um, so mostly um, for upper division uh, students and uh, like professional communications, uh, but also like uh, freshman writing too, freshman comp. Um, and I, you know, I love teaching creative writing, but, uh, just haven't, uh, hasn't worked out the last several semesters now. So that's a question. How did you get into technical writing? Uh, they said, would you like to teach it? And I said, uh, what, uh, when did the pay period start? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is sort of in my very strange part of my very strange, uh, journey within academia. Um, I'm going to call it an adventure because that makes it sound more appealing. Um, but uh, essentially, um, just through the woodwork, I sort of, um, you know, talking to people and people talking to other people, just your sort of run-of-the-mill networking, which is a big part of professional communication as well. Um, th there was a, a need for technical writing teachers at Stony Brook, and um, I, they just sort of had, um, you know, openings. So I've been teaching that for a couple of years now. 
and then also at a uh, St. Joseph's College. They, uh, I, I feel like more and more in general, there's just a, a, a sort of drive for either whatever you want to call it, technical communications, professional communications. Um, and, and of course, there's crossover between uh, like verbal and, and visual presentations as well as written communication. Um, there, there's more and more of a, a sort of drive for that um, among all sorts of majors. I mean, I teach um, computer science students technical writing technical communications and I teach uh, business students and uh, education students um, so it's a pretty wide uh, ranging diverse uh, crowd that I <laughs> I sort of uh, work with at, again at various levels uh, whether 100 um, uh, course level or like up into the 300 sort of upper division stuff so okay. do you think there's less of a focus on those in fields other than the humanities to take creative writing as an elective and they're doing technical writing more for um, future jobs that they're applying for? Yeah, it's it's always tough to say, I think, because, and again, this is just speaking from my experience, of course, but um, it, it's tough to say because like the needs at each school can be so different, right? Because some schools you have very different majors uh, than, than maybe other schools. Um, and I've certainly noticed that at the schools where I teach, but then uh, there are trends like sort of among them. So um, primarily the students I teach, ironically, are not humanities students uh, at, at both the schools that I pretty much teach at. Um, very few of them are humanities students. Um, whether or not those students would want more creative writing classes is, is sort of a, a, another issue, but in general, um, you know, it, it it's kind of tough to say, like some semesters, I feel like they go in and they're like, okay, it's just a required course, whatever still. Um, but more and more, I think that for a lot of reasons, they sort of inherently know that like, there's a lot of value to certain types of professional communication. And I think the universities are aware of it as well. I mean, one of the, the elements that stand out to me, for example, is sort of grade inflation in general. Um, of course, you know, you can get into all sorts of reasons, um, you know, what that really means and, and why that's the case. But um, in terms of, again, what distinguishes students uh, among each other and distinguishes them as future um, applicants, right? You know, future people competing for jobs, um, being able to communicate more effectively and more clearly, that's a huge edge, right? Um, and I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people at the higher levels are sort of aware of that. So I think in general, there's maybe more of an administrative push, push for those types of courses. Again, I don't know how true that actually is. That's just my sense of the situation. Whereas with um, like more creative writing type stuff, I, I think students are really interested in that type of stuff in general. Um, so maybe more so in the humanities, but I think even, uh, you know, somewhat in the sciences, but uh, the immediate sort of um, dividends of that aren't as maybe obvious as like a technical writing class, which is ironic because I think from my perspective, uh, probably the most useful paper I teach in uh, my freshman writing classes is the personal narrative paper. You know, we do uh, analysis, we do a rhetorical analysis and a researched argument paper. Um, but when we do personal narrative papers, I mean, students, whether they like that going in or not, I think they realize, if not that semester, certainly later on how valuable it is because it connects, you know, very distinctly to uh, something like a personal statement. In fact, the example I always give 
is my brother-in-law who's a, a hematologist which is about as legitimate as you can get in terms of you know going you know pursuing and and gaining your career and each step along the way in his career process whether it was becoming a resident a fellow uh, his job now he had to write personal statements like and i think the last one was a two to three page personal statement and i tell them that sounds an awful lot like the you know three page personal essay we're doing right um and that that obviously you can teach in different creative ways and there's different creative assignments so yeah there, there's it, it's more of sort of an implicit benefit that uh isn't necessarily inherently right up front obvious but i think if you're if you're passionate about it and you're you're you know good in that sense of teaching it they they really you know can make sense of like how and why that's important and for their own personal development they wind up um absolutely loving those that type of writing i think so the desire is there um it just it's a little uh less uh i guess you would say maybe like um obvious at at first like you know just says it's written down described on paper but that's the problem with you know justifying the humanities to the bureaucrats in general right it's like oh how do you how do you quantitatively like you know assess the value of this and it's like ask the students like <laughs> you know what they think and what they feel that's a good start yeah i sympathize very much with um with this idea of having to teach something that the students don't necessarily value at the beginning because i always joke that uh, for my tutoring company my job is to teach students writing against their will <laughs> and it does it does generally start that way well there are people who, well, their parents sign them up, and but they're they're happy to be there. And then there are people, their parents sign them up, and if it were a prison, they'd be the one looking for a way out through the laundry cart or, or the garbage truck or whatever. Um, and it really it really does work that way. And then you end up saying to them, well, but you can write about whatever you want, which is already a daunting prospect for right. a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people, when they write, they'd rather have rules. They'd rather have rhyming couplets something to give their story structure but then when they get down to it the structure turns out to be the back and forth between the teacher and the students the um the desire of the student to write some burning thing and then it ends up you know it ends up working out yeah and i feel like we don't talk a lot about it as writing is our profession so Maybe now I'm turning around your personal narrative assignment on you, Joe, but how did you actually get passionate about writing? And mm. what led you to where you are now as an instructor and a creative writer? Jeez, oh man. Uh, so <laughs> I, I don't even know where to begin to unravel that that riddle. Um, I mean, if, in the beginning as, as, as a big book once said, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think now back to like, what is really the, the I mean, like the big bang of creativity in terms of, I, I think maybe, I don't know, maybe a lot of other writers feel this way that like, there's a sort of moment where you feel first inspired. Um, I don't, I don't know how tangible that or identifiable that moment is for, um, for everybody. And, and even for myself, I'm trying to think, uh, um, but definitely when I was a kid, um, you know, uh, when I first started thinking about like stories and, and sharing stories, I think on a on a more sort of uh, like broader, like personal level, 
Um, it sort of stems from my not being the best student uh, growing up. Um, and that was for, you know, various reasons. Um, I don't think I'm really any smarter uh, or not smarter than many other people. Um, I don't even know if that sentence made sense. That's how true it is. Um, <laughs> but uh, I uh, I also had, like, I had, um, um, what would you call it? Like a, uh, I had like... Um, uh, now I can't I can't find the words. I had uh, speech issues growing up, um, so I had trouble like pronouncing certain words. Um, so I was in like speech therapy for years. Um, I had like uh, some health issues uh, growing up uh, throughout high school. So I had all these like just kind of you know weird uh, challenges that really um, did affect me academically um, as well as in other ways. And so, so sort of just um, I, I I think keeping up was always a, a struggle or a challenge for me. I mean, people today, they think, oh, you must have always been, you know, the, the, the best English student or creative writer. And I mean, I, I think I got like a 76 on the English regents, the New York State English regents. I didn't do great. I didn't have good enough grades to get an AP. And a lot of it was because of these, these issues that I was, you know, going through. Um, but I think what those issues sort of taught me and, and, and what I, I sort of evolved out of from those issues is a real understanding of uh, knowing what it feels like not to get things and obviously having sort of tertiary factors that very indirectly but very also directly um, influence how you progress w when everybody else is seemingly doing such a good job at it, such an easy job at it. Um, and trying to find other ways then to, um, you know, sort of uh, just like find meaning or, or find accomplishment. And I think that's why I was always so interested in like escaping and stories and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that's how I really got, got interested in them and did get passionate about them. And that ties directly into sort of what you were asking, I think about teaching in general, um, where I really, I, I understand that feeling of, of not getting things for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and I think that's in large part why I sort of, uh, even from high school on, uh, when I started doing my first tutoring, I always loved working with people in any sort of capacity, whether it was senior citizens, uh, younger people, uh, you know, people with uh, various, you know, struggling uh, backgrounds. I, I worked in social work for a year in New York City, you know, all sorts of people with all sorts of situations. Um, and, and again, I, I sort of think of, of my creative side and my teaching side is inexorably linked in the, in that way. I think, I think the growth of... Uh, teaching sort of influences the other and vice versa from my perspective. But I don't know if that answers the question at all. I'm not sure. It's very moving, I think. Um, it, well, and it ties, I actually had speech therapy lessons as well. As oh, you did? As did I, but though not for very long. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I was in it till I was uh, from like basically, I think, basically elementary school until like middle school, essentially, yeah. Yeah, I had developed a New York accent and i was pronouncing my r's in the very guys and dolls <laughs> new york uh exaggerated yeah. way because i had been very i guess an active interpretation i had watched the guys and dolls movie so much that i started to adopt these <laughs> oh my god andrew you were poisoned by musical theater that, yeah, that makes no, so see, much it sense. has an effect on you representation matters yes the r's <laughs> the r's were my the r words were my bane and uh, I, I still remember one of the tongue twisters they gave us to practice. Uh, Perky the parrot perched on the pirate's shoulder, 
which I love to say today because I can nail it now, but not the case, you know, when I was, uh, yeah. when I was a wee, wee one. Yeah, for me, it was the S's. Mm. I had a pronounced yep. lisp when I was younger that didn't go away like most children do. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is all fascinating. The, to, to me, um, you, you, you tend to find this in teachers, I think. You find um, teachers who, who, who feel very strongly about like a positive experience in their lives. Andrew and I, we've talked about this, right? Um, but also feel very strongly about a negative experience in their lives, right? So you, you end up ha having both the pull and the push in the direction of becoming a teacher. Um, one thing that I do want to make sure that we um, get into our sort of introduction is the, the beach isn't just a symbol for you, right? Or if it is, we haven't at least we haven't necessarily told our audience all about it. So, would you mind telling us a little bit about your extracurricular activities? Yeah. So that's that's another whole uh, <laughs> whole another thing hat. to yeah another hat to uh, unravel. Um, so yeah, if anybody knows anything about me, um, and it's funny, I was at a party I think last summer, and there were a bunch of people from like grad school and just people who I hadn't seen in maybe some of them four or five years. And at this party, everybody who saw me was going, oh my God, it's, it's, it's beach clean Joe. It's, it's Joe, the beach clean professor. How are the beaches? And I'm like, is that my identity to the world now? Is I'm, I'm the beach clean guy. Um, and I think, I guess I am. I think it's, it's, uh, it's just sort of <laughs> what I've become, uh, link to which i'm i'm more than fine with uh that's awesome but uh yeah i um i mean very long story short i did a, a ted talk on exactly this um earlier this year actually um so i'm sure yeah we'll link that so you can watch the whole the whole story um but yeah basically um i i think along the lines and this again ties into sort of my understanding of I guess how everything is linked, but also sort of what I was saying about the, the nature of, of struggle and progress and, and noticing, you know, where, where things need improvement and, and work that we have to do. Um, beach cleaning is sort of an extension of all of that, or it's another manifestation of, of that um, sort of feeling from my perspective. And basically, I, I've always loved the beach. I grew up loving the beach. Uh, I'm actually from Florida, which I usually don't share because for obvious Florida man reasons. Um, but I moved here when I was like 10. Um, and I, have just always been a beach bum. I've always loved swimming, all that stuff. Um, and I used to collect beach glass as part of, I think a process of just, you know, it's a very peaceful sort of fun, casual activity to just go out and find little glass pieces that have been smoothed over. They're very beautiful. Um, and as I was doing that, maybe like four or five years ago now, I started finding a lot of trash and I think particularly, um, also, while reading um, papers at Stony Brook, which a lot of those students are, um, you know, science students, uh, that's a big science research school, and a lot of them are marine sciences or sustainability studies as well, um, I started to learn a lot more about plastic pollution, ocean plastic pollution, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I just started cleaning it up um, just on my own instead of collecting beach glass. Slowly over time, I started posting a lot of that on social media because like everybody else it was you know sort of just puppies and avocado toast which is great um 
but I started finding the trash I was finding too. And all of a sudden it just became like a beach trash Instagram account. And then from there, it just kind of developed further, started to leach into my writing um, in terms of, I mean, the last couple published pieces I've done have been related to, I've been about essentially uh, beach stuff, um, beach cleaning stuff. And then, um, yeah, all of a sudden, fast forward, I just did it, like I said, a TED Talk earlier this year. Um, I have a small organization where um, we uh, organize beach cleans. We did an event last weekend with this local um, store in the town where I live, and they gave free uh, reusable straws to all the participants. I'm trying to organize one with the local brewery for a couple of weeks, so I'll let you guys know about that. Um, so yeah, trying to do like a lot of just you know, collaborations, just see what opportunities there are to work with people and raise awareness. Um, and now I have the YouTube channel, which um, is slowly but surely, uh, you know, gaining some traction in terms of people be getting interested. And that's probably been really the coolest part is that I, I really started it because I want people to see how they can actually do this as well. That, that's sor sort of my idea here. And um I have people all the time now who comment and they say like, oh, I, I, I now go to my local beach and clean or I do this and, and I help. And it sort of ties into this much larger question or issue of what can we do um, at, at, the, at our own personal level to help improve quality of life of our neighborhood or our local community um, while raising like larger societal awareness. And I think this is sort of what you're doing when you're writing. I mean, you're, you could write a short story and it's like, yeah, that's one short story. It might have an impact on uh, however many people it has an impact on, but that adds to the larger sort of commentary on maybe that type of issue that you're writing about. Right. So to me, beach cleaning is, is sort of a weird <laughs> expressive creative way that I have found as valuable as creative writing. And my videos are, you'll see, I have a video coming out tomorrow that I think is probably the most creative because I accidentally ended up beach cleaning and kind of like tropical storm force winds. It's a long story, but it's a funny video. And again, it's, it's to get people, um, it's to contribute to that canon of like getting people talking, getting people learning more, getting people, um, you know, moving towards a, a greater goal sort of. Well, what, and I'm just thinking now as people are listening to this, um, like we've archived this discussion in a way where what you're saying about your advocacy is going to continue on. And I find that so interesting about podcast formats or when we do these types of, interviews because you're acting as an environmental activist and um like you said writing is a there is an ethical and you know some could argue a social justice oriented way of writing depending on mm -hmm. the author's intentions um but i think it's so interesting that you're embedded in a community joe and maybe if you could describe what is it like walk us through maybe is there a certain profile of people who come to the beach clean how would it um usually look on say a saturday morning yeah that's a great question as well because <laughs> it looks uh very diverse very different i mean you never know what you're going to get except for the fact that and i think this is true now more than ever um that people are desperate 
to they're desperate for a lot of things i think i, I don't think you can really boil it down to one fact uh you know one answer but they're certainly I, and again this is my assessment but i think people are desperate for like meaning in general um, I think they're desperate for progress. They're desperate for positive change, but they're also desperate for control. They're desperate for being able themselves to contribute um, to something in a meaningful way. And that's why I think all those uh, sort of descriptions are, are maybe linked, tied together. And so you see all sorts of people then coming out to uh, beach cleans that I organize. Um, the last one last week, um, yeah, young younger people, a lot of high school students are really... You know, they, they really, they see how messed up the world is and they, they really want to try to do something about it, which is awesome because that's what we do need. Um, but you see older people too. I mean, I, and, and you see different types of people. I have, you know, <laughs> I have people show up to my beach cleans wearing Trump 2020 hats. Um, what do you do with that? Right? Like, <laughs> you know, um, there's there's a lot of things you can do with that uh from my perspective i'm not going to turn those people away because uh my feeling of the nature of progress is that it's a it's a slow you know climb up up the mountain you know um as, as much as we'd like to get there fast and you know if i can engage people who have very different opinions than me for whatever reasons um and slip sort of shift the narrative slightly um, or their understanding maybe rather slightly in a, uh, in a more, uh, progressive or, or progressing direction. Um, I'm going to try to take advantage of that opportunity. And I, I've always sort of been the type myself. I, I think that's something about any form of activism or advocacy. That's important to note. Uh, I'm very much the type of person that likes to lead by example. Like I feel most comfortable that way. Um, and um, I, I think that's sort of what beach cleaning is oftentimes. Um, I, I'm, I'm not really a, like a shamer type person when I go out and beach clean. I have friends who are, where if they see people not behaving, they will call them out and they get mixed reactions on that. So I, I don't have any solid theories on that, like how you should, you know, react to people not picking up their stuff. But, um, oh, you know, oh, sorry. no, go ahead. Doing and beach cleaning, if they see someone throw trash and just mm -hmm. leave they'll actually call that person out yeah yeah and i've seen mixed reactions where the people go oh oh sorry or they you know they go full new york and the cursing begins again which is more productive i don't know i think you got to do what you feel most comfortable doing like i i wouldn't feel comfortable doing that and i feel like i would fail at moving that person um more towards behaving themselves whereas um people who see me i'm you know, I'm thinking I'm all about I'm a critical mass type guy where I, I think it's important to move towards a critical mass to, to get things to actually happen. Um, and so that that's sort of how I feel about it. when I notice when people see me beach cleaning, they do take note. And sometimes they'll ask questions. They'll they'll talk to me. Um, but I think it's 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 sort of important that it's it's working towards again every time it's like if you can bring one new person in they bring other people in it it sort of snowballs from there and I I mean even just over the past I would say particularly the past year or so I think you know the past couple of years we've seen bag uh, plastic bag bands and straw bands um, which are good but they're they're less than one percent of the problem right. Um, and I think people sort of realize that after a while, they're like, oh, you can't uh, 
fight for these band-aids when you need surgery, right? Um, you, you need major medical surgery when we're, we're talking about ocean plastic pollution. Uh, a band-aid's not going to stop the the bleeding. So I think people are sort of starting to to wake up to that fact. Um, so what would you and, say are the big issues? Well, ultimately, and uh, this is where it gets very complicated, right? Because sort of like I was saying with uh, maybe some Trump people who will come out beach cleaning. Um, I would imagine that at least some of those people, the reason why they're beach cleaning is because they can see the trash on the beach. They can see the problem. They can't see carbon emissions, which is why many of them that I've spoken to do not believe in global warming. Uh, they do not believe in climate change. Uh, not all of them, but certainly there are th those out there, right? Um, but if I can start to, you know, again, maybe lead them towards that direction, um, I'll, I'll sort of uh, take it because that then, as you ask, leads into the much larger issue, which gets into mass societal plastic consumption and, and what I call the plastics industrial complex. I don't even know if that's a real term, but to me it is. It is um, now. It, it should be. <laughs> it's not. I mean, that's um, how we get real terms is, is by somebody saying this should be a term. Yeah, so, you well, it now, so it's in the air. Well, let's yeah. let's ha let's hashtag it because it's a it's a really it's a very real problem, and again, speaking of how everything, so many things are much more linked than I think people realize. I mean, you start to really look at plastics manufacturing, um, and and it becomes a social justice issue very quickly. Um, it becomes a, a socioeconomic issue. It becomes an issue in all sorts of ways for all sorts of people, um, and it's one of those kind of like major um, obstacles that obviously you beach cleaning yourself, aren't, you're not going to tackle. But the more people that you can sort of get on board and then you need to push for these larger policy changes and just policy awareness, um, it, 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 it is all steps in, in the right direction. So yeah, that, that sort of needs to be addressed. And that's tied into our own plastic consumption, um, re, you know, reusing plastics, not reducing all, all that classic stuff that you've heard about re, reuse, re, reduce, recycle, um, all of that. Um, it, we, I really think like we need more awareness because it's not as if one person's going to solve all of those issues, right? Like if you try to say like, well, now I'm going to go to this thing, thing about recycling and I'm going to do that. Like, I don't have time to do everything. Like I have four jobs. I don't have time to, you know, focus on what's going on with this type of recycling as, as well. But if you can get more people involved, it sort of takes the burden off yourself. And that's a big problem. I mean, that's something I call beach cleaners anxiety uh, or cleaners anxiety. Speaking of made up terms, right? Um, this is something that's very real that I see with new beach cleaners uh, who, you know, friends or just people I meet uh, who come out beach cleaning within the first couple of times they clean, they sort of get this anxiety because they realize, oh, I cleaned this beach last week or even yesterday and today I come back and it's as trashed if not worse and they realize oh there's a much larger systemic issue here right that's that's huge that's a huge step in that larger collective awareness um, that we we sort of need to move towards and and again at the same time though you you have to sort of console the fact that like the little changes that you're making do make a difference on that micro level and this is something that I I talk about in, in the TED talk as well that well, yeah, if you clean your local beach still, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't clean the beach because um, you're still helping your local environment. And that translates quite tangibly to, um, you know, I've seen seagulls with uh, nets around their feet 
or uh, fishing line and they can't fly. Like you see turtles tangled up and stuff. So again, those local creatures, they're part of your local ecosystem. So you are helping at that local level again, while we're moving towards these, these bigger changes. And that kind of, I'm curious about the environmental, um, the justice that you're describing here of just on a micro level of what you're doing with beach cleaning there, it does seem like there is some type of metaphor um, to be drawn upon with literature and how one narrative or let's use just novels as the genre that one novel is only one voice, right? And you start to build a collection and there's, more um, intertextual components, the more you add different narratives together. And I'm wondering, is there ways that there's intersecting social justice causes happening that you just see on a micro level? Do discussions Mm -hmm. happen around uh, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, um, Black Lives Matter? Um, Do these conversations come up as you're doing beach cleaning? Mm, that's really interesting. Um, I don't think, um, I, I feel like it is more and more, um, but it's a slow process. Um, and, and this is good that it is happening. Right. Um, but I, I think that's a good question because it's, um, it's easy to sort of isolate things and not look at the bigger picture and how all of these things are interconnected. Uh, but I think it's important that we do exactly that sort of like you're saying, you know, sometimes we can do that via literature and, and discussing literature. Right. Um, and, and I think they are, you know, they are very um, in, intensely linked in those ways um, in terms of the conversation and, and then the narratives in, in terms of like uh, really looking at all of this. I, I think it is, again, it's increasing, but it's a slow sort of collective awareness. Um, and I don't think it's, um, you know, it's it's like any good change that happens. It doesn't happen overnight. And it's unfortunate because we need changes to start happening overnight pretty soon um, because we're, <laughs> we're getting in deep with a lot of, I mean, we've been in deep with a lot of issues for, for a very long time um, or forever in some cases, but... Um, I've seen it more and more, um, certainly in a lot of the the social media uh, that I follow and sort of the the people that I converse with. Um, And again, it's coming from different angles, though. It's so like even me just trying to process it right now, I'm not smart enough to do it. Um, I can sort of I, I can see it abstractly, but trying to explain it even is so hard. So let me let me try to take a stab at it because um here's an example right like when i started posting my beach clean stuff on social media basically on instagram maybe three or four years ago probably four years ago now um i mean there were people who would post stuff about beach clean events that they would do um i didn't know of any dedicated um beach cleaning uh accounts um similarly with youtube as far as I know, I mean, and my YouTube uh, channel isn't um, anything, you know, epic at the moment, but um, one of the reasons why I started is because there were there are no other beach clean YouTube channels. There's all these others, but there, there's nothing on beach cleaning. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't 
similar channels there are and f for the example with instagram tons of uh accounts on um beachcombing it's called which is basically looking for like treasures uh and when i say treasures i mean like cool shells cool rocks um cool beach glass which is what i was originally doing tons of accounts countless accounts on all of that um over the last few years now a lot of those accounts have become beach cleaning accounts um and furthermore, a lot of those accounts as well are now talking about other social justice issues um, as well. In fact, there's some really good ones I can send you where there's this one, I forget the name off the top of my head, but um, she's fantastic. She actually runs like an eco podcast and she's all about this nexus of so, uh, social justice, environmental justice, and, um, and you know, so, social issues. Um, I mean, look, you don't have to look any farther than the Green New Deal, right? I mean, that's, you know, if you read the Green New Deal, they're, you know, tied hand in hand, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the, the conversation is most definitely shifting. I think it's a it's a slow shift, um, but it is it is good to see because, again, that starts to really get to and address these much larger, obvious, uh, obviously systemic issues that we know about in, in a lot of these other uh, issues, right? And I hope this doesn't sound flippant, what's about to come out of my mouth. Um, That's everything I say. <laughs> but you actually are our first white straight male interviewee. Um, and I find it really <laughs> interesting to bring up because Adam, you know, identifies as white straight and uh, he's a man. I'm cisgender. And I'm just curious that... You <laughs> if you feel like you're able to sway, especially when you're talking about those who might be more conservative leaning, I find yeah. events that I do because I am very vocal as being a gay white man that there is an LGBTQ type of identity that I'm affiliated with, that mm. there's a draw for those who attend those events that, I mean, maybe eventually I will face off with a conservative wing but um do you think that your identity does play a factor in maybe who comes out to your events uh yeah it, i mean it's it's always hard to say because you, you never know for any one given event like how who is hearing about what um because sometimes they're uh they're coordinated events with other people and they're inviting other people out um but i mean yeah i mean certainly um you know that's one that's been one of the mo most interesting things because i mean you're not wrong when people uh i mean particularly a lot of like i, I guess people similar to me right like uh um uh, you know straight white people i guess that's that's the i don't know i don't know if that's the proper term but um they uh they kind of sometimes assume that i i think they kind of assume that i'm a trumper or i'm republican or something sometimes when people meet me um I've gotten that vibe before because just because they seem so comfortable saying outrageous things to me um, that I would never even repeat some of. Um, so I, I, and that makes sense, I guess, right? Cause it's like, I'm similar to them in these factors. So they assume I maybe have similar beliefs and values, um, which I think that works for me because I'm just like, I feel like a spy then. And I'm like, Oh, interesting. Like, yes. Like, tell me more. And then I could say, Oh, well actually this, you know, um, <laughs> so i mean i don't know if that that sort of answer, like, answers the question but it's like you're an informant of sorts 
yeah i mean it's i'm kind of in a weird place because um i mean i i've always considered myself i've always considered myself very liberal um yet i i've never been a democrat until actually this past primary i finally switched um and i don't know i don't know what i'll do moving forward i haven't decided yet but um like uh i i i don't know because everybody who i've ever known who's a democrat assumes i'm a democrat um which i which i essentially am in practice i suppose but um but tons of other people i think assume uh assume otherwise for you know the reasons uh we we sort of mentioned so yeah maybe maybe i am more like an informant but i you know again i mean i think i think ultimately uh to use the cliche at the end of the day um I, I the thing i like about beach cleaning is that it's it's sort of um it is something that like we can agree on in a time when we cannot agree on anything like we can't even come close to agree like basic re reality things right and this has been a problem for quite some time now obviously this is not necessarily new um but like i said the the trump people and the the whoever other people can go to the beach and say oh yeah there's a lot of trash here we should probably pick that up um of course you're always going to have a-holes who say it's not my beach uh you know i i worked all day i don't I don't, it's not my job to pick up other people's trash, but that's not even a political thing. I mean, I have very liberal friends who act that way and I have a uh, very, cons I, I don't know what the percentages actually are, but I'm saying like you, you get that with, with a lot of people, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, there are entitled personalities in all institutions and all yeah. affiliations. Yeah. Um, which, and even yeah. what you're saying about this, um, when you're talking about even though there is this type of cleaner's anxiety and yeah. um, you're still making some visible difference that you see. And it's Adam and I have talked about this a lot, which is academic conferences and the way conversations are turning, they're turning more and more about pedagogy and how to teach. Like mm -hmm. I feel everything I continue to see you know, how are you in impacting your student uh, body? And I think it's because there's such a tangible connection that you have to students. Um, and these questions haven't always been asked. But I think it's really interesting how you traverse these different realms. And, you know, um, I think I remember you went to Southampton for your MFA. Uh, yeah. And did you feel like it was a bubble? Because whenever I think of people doing mm -hmm. their MFA in creative writing, I think, oh, it must be so exciting to be surrounded by fellow writers, almost like if you're in a art colony of fellow playwrights or performers. Yeah. Um, grad school was grad school was a blast. <laughs> um, I that program in particular I really loved. Um, I mean, in, in terms of that particular program, I think any writing program, uh, like a like an MFA type program, is going to be bubbly to some sort. There's going to be bubblish elements to it. I think some are more so than others. Um, in fact, you know, if you compare it to some other MFA programs, for example, some of them are probably much more bubbly. Like the uh, the the Iowa Writers Workshop, like that one sounds like it's just it's it's hardcore just you know that's the program and that's that's your life you're just 
my my f- uh, friend went there and he was telling me about it and he's like oh yeah we would talk about this author all day and that author all day and i was like i've never heard of any of these guys <laughs> and and so that's kind of, i i really do feel like i'm a really uh for lack of a better term crappy academic um because of i mean first of all all the reasons i said about why i sucked in school um i've just always been interested in this stuff i mean that's this essentially one of the first things i tell my students uh, the only reason that you think I'm better at you than writing, and I am, but uh, the only reason why that's the case is because I've been failing at it far longer than you have. Um, but I've been taking those lessons to heart and getting slightly better, probably not as fast as I should be or as fast as I hope you do, uh, but I've just been doing it for longer, right? Um, and, and so in terms of uh, like MFA programs, um, yeah, I think they're just sort of inherently, they're bubbly. And I think that can be a good thing. I think it can be not such a great thing, maybe in other ways. But I like the program out in uh, Stony Brook, Southampton, because uh, it, w- it was a good middle ground. It was a good balance. Like I was still working full time to pay for, you know, pay bills and pay my way through. And in some ways, like, yeah, I wish I had just had that sort of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, uh, a fantasy land of just live in the literature. Um, that would have been pretty cool, I think, actually, at least for a little bit, maybe. Um, I don't know, because I haven't gotten to do it, uh, except for at conferences, maybe, right? But um, at the same time, like, it's it's good to have to be a real person at the same time, maybe still. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. But I think in general, um, I think every program might be very different in that in those regards. Well, this word should is, is a really dangerous word, right? How fast should you be getting better at writing? How, how good at school should you be if you want to be a teacher? It, it, it ends up being that the people who are, I mean, this goes back to what you were saying about beach cleaning. And I am seeing a lot of connections between the various parts of your life. But it ends up being that the people who are genetically predisposed to be good beach cleaners aren't necessarily going to be the ones who actually go out and do it every day or every other day or every week and and get the work done right like if we could Mm. if we could have genomically superior teachers that would be great but what we end up having is people who want to be teachers and people who are willing to do the work to be teachers Mm. um that's a great point in that in that sense, you are you are ideally fitted out to be a teacher because you became one, mm. so you're yeah. there. Yeah, I, I like I I love I love that uh, that sentiment, and especially like you say with beach cleaning, I get that a lot. Where people the the weirdest thing for me, honestly, is when people thank me or they'll be like, "Oh, you're such a hero." You're yeah. this, and I'm like, "Please, like, no, I'm." I'm just literally picking up trash. Well, I think we should take a moment to do this. We should we should like imagine the ideal beach cleaner as somebody with like short legs and long arms to <laughs> to reduce strain on their back and maybe webbed feet in case the tide comes in. Like yeah. these are all these are all possibilities for 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 the future and this this is why this is why you're maybe not I mean, I don't know that you've ever said this to yourself that you're not ideally suited to beach cleaning. But you clearly said that you're not ideally suited to teaching, even though it's exactly the same argument. That's really interesting. You're kind of freaking me out, man. <laughs> I have that effect on people. It's an ongoing concern. I'm, Although, ideally, I'm ideally suited to freaking people out is the real issue. That's that's a resume line right there. 
Um, and you're giving me some great ideas for some short stories, which I really want to take more time to uh, to work on. But um, oh, but you can't because you're not ideally suited to writing short stories. I'm definitely not ideally suited suited to write short stories. I will say this: I do think I'm a better beach cleaner than I am short story writer, which is ironic because that's what I studied in grad school, and that's what I love, and that's what I publish. I mean, people who study beach cleaning were, are are not studying the the part that you're doing. They're studying the the politics of it and the mm -hmm. science of it. Yeah, and and that's sort of I, I guess where I come in, right? Because I I have students who are in sustainability studies, they're in marine sciences, and they're doing all sorts of really cool stuff. Um, you know, with restoration, with uh, uh, composting, with just all this great stuff that we need to be doing. Uh, that's way over my head in terms of that's just not what I do for a living. Um, but the beach cleaning, pretty much most people can do. Like that's sort of the point of it is that exactly what you say. It's it's a choice. It's it's a decision to do so. It's not. I mean, I again, I I, I really I really want you guys to see this video. I'm gonna uh, post on my channel tomorrow because it's it's basically basically me realizing halfway through a beach clean that these are almost borderline dangerous uh tropical storm like force winds i think they were like 35 mile per hour winds which isn't too crazy but that is not what you want to be beach cleaning in and again part of the, the part of the thing is like so many people might see that and and initially just think oh my god that looks uh, that looks crazy that looks like a horrible way to spend your afternoon but by the end of it i'm laughing at how much fun i had um and i did i had a great time usually Again, it's 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 kind of like the 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 half glass uh, the glass half full or, or half empty, and the fact that no, I was still able to go out and and do all this uh, you know trash collecting and and share kind of these stupid decisions that I made along the way with people, and I I think it was it, you know I I had a better time than if it had just been a, a perfect crisp um, autumn day because that's not life. Every day in life isn't perfect perfect and autumn crisp nor should it be how boring would that be if that were every day so yeah i think there's a lot there yeah and i'm always curious of when we're asked um by the general public like say you know you joe you just walked into a local coffee shop and you say oh i teach at stony brook in writing and i also do beach cleaning on the weekend. Like, do you find that maybe which is misunderstood more by the public or are both misunderstood? <laughs> I laugh because you made me just want to pour uh, a glass of whiskey or, or something to try to answer that question, try to unravel that question. Is, 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 is teaching writing misunderstood by the public? Um, yeah, I mean, in in different ways, yet similar ways, I think. Um, it's funny you, you, you bring that up, though, for another reason, though, because most people who meet me when I say that I'm a professor and I beach clean, 99% of the time they assume I'm a science professor. They assume I'm a, a marine science sustainability professor. And they're actually really surprised when I tell them that, no, I'm a writing instructor. I'm just a weird dude who <laughs> picks up trash all day, you know? And they're like, actually, that makes sense the more they get to know me. But um, it's like, I always call it, I hope that it's good weird. You know, there's bad weird and not so good weird and, and maybe good weird. I think it's good weird. Um, but yeah, it, it, it certainly... Um, 
it it is some i i think even when i uh I was doing a talk. It might have been the TED Talk or something else, but they sent me the press release to look over, and it said, like, oh, he's a science professor at Stony Brook because they just assumed science school, you know, uh, marine science stuff, like, boom. Uh, and so uh, that's happened more than once where I have to uh, certainly correct, like, actual written stuff that people are going to write. And, and again, that's I think that's sort of why it's so good that I do this type of stuff, though, because it's it's showing that, like, no, you don't have to be uh, a specialized expert in this field to do something meaningful about it. I mean, of course, these experts are important and we need more of them and we need to promote and support them. The, the, again, none of these ideas are mutually exclusive. That's the problem I find today with society in general is it's so polarized in terms of just I, I, you know, hard, hard line identifications. And it's like, no, like we need, we need both. We need all of that. Like I was saying earlier with, with the, the micro changes to help raise awareness towards those macro changes there. Um, it, it, it's a seeming paradox, I think oftentimes to, to some people. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's quite consolable. I think if you really, um, just, just sort of think about the, the, the process and, and why it does, does in fact matter. And do the experts seek you out? I'm curious, like, do you get science professors who want to learn more about what you're doing? I think um, not like any professors uh, explicitly, not yet. Um, but again, a lot of like my students who are now grad students, um, I, I, I talk with a lot of them and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, plan more, more work with them, like more beach cleans and that sort of stuff. Mm. But like I'm starting to give lectures. I think um, I have one next Tuesday at uh, the Amagansett Public Library because they saw my TED talk and they were like, "Oh, you're the beach clean expert." Like, <laughs> you know, uh, can you give a lecture? And I was like, "Well, I do clean beaches and I do lecture for a living, so I guess I'll put those two together." And uh, so yeah, I'm like, <laughs> it, it's it's weird. It's it's uh, I I love it. Um, and that's one of the things I do love about academia is that in, in principle, at least there are these, uh, it does afford these opportunities to really do some, some different stuff. Um, and if you are a creative person, um, I, I think that's really cool to be able to take advantage of, of those types of opportunities. So I would, you know, I would love to do more like you ask with, um, you know, instructors and, and stuff at, you know, specific schools. But uh, there's just so many limitations right now because I, I am doing stuff that I really love. Um, and because uh, I just have so many other jobs, I just don't have time to do some of that stuff that I would ideally want to do um, in terms of those types of further collaborations. I could see it certainly happening in the future, but uh, somebody's going to have to give me a, a pay raise first before <laughs> before that happens. And I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So well, that's whatever. Yeah, and pay labor is important. Uh, yeah, mm. and it's like I think of I've heard of that. I've heard of that. Myth. You've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I've heard legends. Yeah, it's but next I, to El Dorado on the map, right? But I think of like what Adam's been trained in, and what I'm training in in literature, and what you trained in for creative writing. That a lot of the times we don't speak to those communities who we've been in conversation with in literature. And like for Adam, I guess I'm coming more and more to this understanding, but Adam trained, and maybe I'm, you know, not necessarily representing what your work is, but he does a lot with Renaissance drama. And I think, oh, it'd be great that Adam spoke to more performers in different productions and that you would act as a historian for them 
or I mean that is that is a job. Mm -hmm. It's just not my job. Yeah, but do you want that to be your job? A little bit. One of the things that I always made a point to do when I was teaching at Stony Brook is to mess with my students on purpose in various ways. Because you need to do that. You, first of all, first of all, they shouldn't just be trusting you because you're wearing a blazer. And they're not. Well, and Adam always dresses. I always wore a blazer. No, I did not because sometimes it was summer. Um, but in the winter, I felt really good because I'd ha I had that I had that blazer. So people would listen to me. It was great. That's why winter is my favorite season is because that's when people listen to me. But anyway, uh, but anyway, so so that's one thing is that I would always mess with my students. And one of the ways I would mess with them is I would be teaching a poetry class and I would assign a Shakespeare play. Uh, now, normally, of course, if you're taking intro to drama, you expect at least one of the plays is going to be Shakespeare. And if you're taking poetry, you expect to be doing, I don't know, the sonnets or whatever. So I would do both. I would do the sonnets and, and a play. Because uh, I wanted the students to get used to the idea of that poetry doesn't end in those little books that nobody buys, well, a few people buy, um and um in like in that one corner of the bookstore right poetry is in some ways everywhere and um i would actually assign a work of drama usually when i taught prose as well like just you just need more you, you need fewer lines in your life like like joe was saying mm -hmm. right you need fewer boundaries in your life so that yeah. was that was one big thing and the other big thing is that when i taught uh, when I taught poetry or drama, I would always, um, it was always at the intro level. So I was always like you, I was always teaching students who were basically science majors, right? Mm. Um, I would always include, include a performance component, right? You have to get together with two or three people and figure out how to put this on, on a $0 budget. This, this in some ways I think is what, is what good teaching is, right? If you were if you were a perfect student, you would never question what you learned, mm -hmm. which is ironic because the perfect student is the person who questions what they learn, but that's a separate mm -hmm. talk. Um, so the fact that you're a struggling student means that you're a struggling teacher and there's no better kind of teacher mm. because that's a, that's a teacher who's willing to change their approach. That's a, a teacher who's willing to acknowledge students who have different approaches, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, and willing to experiment. And I mean, exactly. I can tell, Joe, you experiment with different forms and um, different communities. I mean, I don't mean experiment in like... Uh, yeah, it's important to experiment on your students. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> no, none, none of that is... Too many waivers, right too here. many waivers for that. <laughs> yeah. but. Yeah. I know, I I know what you mean, and it, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I I think being a creative mind, if I can call myself that, um, is is a good thing in the sense that like, um, I I'm not one to guard secrets either. Um, and I think this is important too. With, I really do honestly feel that where like, if I do enough beach cleaning stuff where it gets so popular that the issue goes away great i'll do something else like i'll find something else that needs you know i wasn't born a beach cleaner like i saw this and i started doing it right i'll go have a sandwich till i figure something else out like i genuinely want progress to be made with this 
Um, and it's the same thing with teaching. It's like if I have a good idea or a good lesson plan, I'm the first one to share it with a friend who I think might benefit from it. And conversely, like my my friends who I think are the best teachers, they'll openly share something with me and, and I'll take it and sort of make it my own and they'll take my assignment or, or whatever and, and make it their own. And I think you're right because it's sort of about um, being flexible in um, in how we approach the fact that the, the, you know, from one semester to the next or one class to the next, one group of students to the next, their situations, their learning styles, uh, it very well, you know, will 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 oftentimes differ, even if it's the same course. And I mean, for most of my classes now, I don't even have a lesson plan, to be honest. Um, I have sort of my syllabus, and sometimes I write up a very brief outline before I, I begin class, because there's just some points that I know I'm going to forget. Um, but I really don't go in with a lesson plan anymore. Um, I, I, I again, I have a list. Of, I have like organized all my different types of activities and, and handouts and all that sort of stuff. But um, in terms of like a detailed script or something like that, um, you know, I just uh, I, I try to uh, feel the vibe, which is hard now. Um, but uh, I think that's why it's. I mean, I think humanities now is like. I mean, I was talking to students yesterday. And one of the things I asked them, because I'm genuinely curious, how are your other classes going? Ask that question and see what responses you get. <laughs> because a spoiler alert, it's not going well um, in a lot of cases. Like, yeah. I asked the same thing of my students, and they looked exacerbated. Yeah. Ex exasperated. They're looking, they're looking exacerbated, whatever, you know. Um, I, again, I mean, I think I think a lot of people are making the most of the situation, and I think students and instructors alike, a lot of them are doing fantastic work. Um, but I think in a lot of other cases, it's uh, it's a real struggle yeah. for lots of reasons. Yeah. Well, and you're getting to the point of how um, there's a certain destabilizing of hierarchy going on right now, and that's why I'm so glad. To hear that you're going to talk at uh, the Amagansett Library, um, because I found the library talks, or even just interacting with the public, talking about Whitman, I get so such interesting questions, because mm. a lot of them are newcomers to the poetry, or even talking about Whitman as a having queer themes, and sometimes I'll talk to youth who identify as LGBTQ. And I think that's the most meaningful to me is this does matter. Like it does. Um, that's the humanistic component of what I do is mm. people who respond to ideas. And I think that's why all of us here, we love teaching so much because students are responding and they are most of the time taking in and they're, you know, if you create a classroom where their voice matters, um, you're building a certain trust with the students. But yeah, I wonder, I don't think we can answer all of what's happening right now with the academy and it's breaking down. <laughs> but, you know, is there a certain academic, we're not naming names, but is there a certain kind of personality that grates your nerve or really you don't have time for right now um i i only know of answers that i think will get me in trouble 
which I think speaks to the problem. Mm. Um, so I'll say much more broadly, admin, and probably not much more, because um, I think that answers the question. Like, yeah. I'm genuinely not comfortable criticizing a lot about academia for various reasons. Um, and I think that's a huge problem. I think it's a huge problem in a lot of circles. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's it's true. Um, I mean, it's true in academia, but I, I, I mean, I was even talking to somebody um, yesterday who uh, they deleted their Twitter account because they're, I think they're a high school teacher. They're a New York City grade school teacher. And they're like, yeah, I like I'm being, you know, essentially like, I feel as if like this could be a lot of trouble for me because they've seen other people who have gotten fired mm. and this person was not saying anything that either of us thought was unreasonable, you know, and, and you know me, like I'm, re I'd like to think I'm relatively reasonable and this person's afraid, um, about admin recourse mm. and, um, you know, like I, I feel like such a like it's such a cop out just to say, but I, you know, that's that's sort of where I'm at. Like I, you know, I I am very wary. Is all I, is all I'll say about that. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious whether or not this makes it into our interview. We like to say that <laughs> sometimes because usually that's what we keep in the interview. Um, yeah. Understandable. It, with the grad students, I mean, I'll speak to it because I've signed my name to it, but mm -hmm. we're petitioning all of our fees that have been raised. And I'm kind of curious to see what happens in the next coming weeks um, mm. with everything hitting the fans, which faculty members sign on with us and yeah. which decide to stay silent. And, <laughs> you know, it's going to be a very telling moment. Um, but like you say, Joe, a lot of it does have to do with we talk all the time about the corporatization of the university and mm -hmm. what all that means. And I guess maybe I'll spin the question back onto maybe why I voiced it, which is um, it can be frustrating and you gestured to this um, with those who always see themselves as being perfect in some kind of way or these are the smartest intellects. I had the best grades. Uh, mm -hmm. Look at my GRE scores. All of, I think if you, like you're saying, it doesn't necessarily matter if you had um, A's across the board in high school or like Adam, you even spoke to that. There's a certain questioning that goes on with creative minds. And I think that's really important because there's listening right now, they might be new to a master's program or a PhD program, or maybe they're undergrads who are listening. Um, and I get, I always get worried when I start to hear people compare themselves and say, so-and-so is such a smarter person. And I don't know how that serves someone in a healthy way. I mean, it, it gives you a sense of control, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it helps you manage your expectations. It helps you manage your disappointment. Oh, I can't do this uh, because I'm not equipped to do it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, it serves it serves a very real function. This, this is this is something that that's been very important to me as a as a teacher, as a friend, as everything is to is to understand that every stupid thing that we do is uh, serves a purpose, right? Um, and and what that means is that is that you're better off trying to figure it out you're better off trying to figure out why uh your why you or why your friend or whatever um has a bad habit right an addiction or a um an abrasive personality or whatever it is then you are saying well you just shouldn't do that that's that that's a given but that's a given to your mind you're uh, the part of your mind that you that you can deal with, the other parts of your body, are not liable to use the same kind of logic, and so you end up having to have multiple types of logic in order to um, in order to understand why it is we do what we do. Yeah. Um, and so, so when you when you have one of, one of my favorite cycles in psychology is when you get down on yourself for getting down on yourself because it's this it's this gorgeous little closed circle right oh my god i can't believe i can't stop berating myself i'm such an i swear i've heard that um in all honest in in all honesty and without um without self-awareness and it's it's the saddest thing you can say because there's nowhere to go from there right when it sounds like you're talking about writer's block in a way. Oh, I'm definitely <laughs> talking about writer's block. I'm also talking about the sort of uh, slings and arrows uh, feeling of a graduate student and just anything, right? That you don't, you just don't, you don't want to face up to the fact that, that um, you might fail at something because you tried, but and you tried as hard as you could and you couldn't do it. So you end up coming up with these um, sort of self, these ways of berating yourself. Yeah, the self-defeating mind. Um, well, and is there a way, I don't know, maybe Joe, you have some <laughs> shedding light on this. Is there a way to get out of that cycle of the anxious scholar or writer? Yeah, I mean, I have no shortage of anxiety, that's for sure. And as what I would also, uh, pretty, I think, accurately term is uh, imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of, I think a lot of uh, people in our positions maybe feel these types of things. You know, one thing I'll say for sure is that, um, and I've learned this over time, that intelligence by no means uh, equals goodness. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I like the humanities, um, because one of and actually, my earlier interest, uh, even before English, was really history. I've always been, loved history. I've been fascinated by history. And I still regularly read history, listen to uh, history podcasts, history audiobooks. And one of the things you learn is that a, a lot of the worst people in history were highly, highly intelligent people in terms of raw intellectual power, very smart, very capable people. And so I think you're right what you're saying where it's sort of just um, praising intelligence as like, well, that equals, you know, progress or success or, or being, you know, good at something. Of course, that 
you know, can be the case and, and many times perhaps is, um, but it's not everything. And, and again, this ties back into everything else I think we've been saying where, you know, ultimately like you do have, um, and, and I mean, furthermore, intelligence isn't one, like, again, it's not one check. It's not like turning on a light switch or turning off a light switch. Like it's one of the, the few things I took away from studying, uh, education in, in, uh, undergraduate school was the idea of multiple intelligences right that you have uh, you know there's a reason why you can be you can have somebody be a mozart and but you can't also teach that person necessarily to be the best at chemistry or some you know some some other intelligence right um so uh, of course you have all of these intelligences that you might not even know that you have you might not even be aware of if you're and i think this is a problem why uh with uh school in general schooling in general and why so many people do fail or do struggle i mean i certainly saw that when i was, I was a social worker in new york city i mean highly intelligent students who just for all sorts of uh societal reasons all sorts of family reasons all sorts of personal reasons um all sorts of institutional reasons in terms of the resources they were given or not given thought that they were stupid and so far from the case you know when you give them even a little bit of of um, you know resources to work with uh, to help them you know come to that awareness um, and you know in terms of myself as as a writer as a teacher as uh, you know ideally a creative person um, I think it's something that like you have to remind yourself of like i i do feel as if sometimes i i lose sight um where you're you're fighting often so much for these people to help realize their potential like you can't forget your own <laughs> you know your own sort of uh wellness in that regard and it's easy sometimes to lose sight of when you are so busy with everything um and and again that's why like i i sort of have thought about all this beach cleaning stuff that I do um, and the advocacy of it is very much an extension of my efforts as a creative person um, in, in terms of just, um, you know, engaging people and trying to influence uh, people further, but also to express myself. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if this is going to necessarily um work out the way I plan it to, as I say this to you, Joe, but every time I pass by the certain shelf that has your book, American Dreamers, plug, James <laughs> plug for Joe's book. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I always am just really excited to know you as the author. And there's a certain, um, you know, I respect the creativity that got you to that point to publish a novel. Um, and I think we're always we're always looking for admirers, right? Or someone who values the work we do. But like you say, you have to yourself um, put on your own life jacket before you can help others. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, we know what happens in the Titanic film. Not everyone puts on their life jacket. Um, that's a that's a whole other situation. About <laughs> privilege and class. Um, yeah pushing children out of the way. Yeah. yeah all that, all that, <laughs> yeah, that good stuff. That, yeah. That aggressive, uh, fiance character. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, and I think knowledge, everyone always says knowledge is power, right? That's the, the New York library. They always run mm -hmm. with that for book national book week, but it's true. Knowledge is power for good and bad, right? You could mm -hmm. have people who are extremely knowledgeable and we see this happening now 
who have a conservative bent, but they know all of the things to cite. I mean, they have the constitutional knowledge. Um, doesn't mean that they're ethically good. Um, and I think it's important that, you know, you recognize, especially having that background as a social worker, which I didn't know. Um, it's another I, hat. It's, it's, yeah, it's another it's, hat. It's on the chair over there, but it's, it's, it's over there. How do you envision that? Hat? It, 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 it it's a, it's a hat uh, with a lot of holes because uh, one of the reasons why I left was because I literally couldn't afford to pay rent because it's it's so uh, social workers are so egregiously underpaid for the amount of value they can provide, which is a whole other issue. You know, like you yourself are supposed to be helping those in need, but here yeah. you are, you can't afford rent. It's oh yeah, it was it, it it's it's a nightmarish scenario in terms of. You know, uh, I mean, that's a whole other a whole other issue. But the way I explain it, I boil it down is like, you know, do the math. It's like how many students per semester told me that I helped keep them out of jail? At least a couple explicitly would tell me this. Um, how much does it cost to have somebody in jail in New York for a year? About 50 grand. How much did they pay me a year? 34 grand. What do they do? when they don't have any quality people doing social work and the program fails, they shut the whole thing down, yeah. which is what exactly what happened. Yeah. But you're right. It's very unfortunate. Like, and I'm sure you're seeing this virtually with your students. I think you're also though in hybrid in person too. Um, but yeah. I'm like a sci-fi character. I'm everywhere. <laughs> yeah. You're like yeah. in all different modalities. Yeah. Um, but when it comes down to resources, um, there are some who, you know, can't get the bandwidth and they can't access some of the programs on their computer, or maybe they don't have a computer and only one person can use it in the household. Right? There's a lot of, but again, this isn't something new. This is speaks to the heart of um, how schooling privileges certain people from certain backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I always return to libraries because they are something that is open to the public and they are ways to engage with knowledge and um, obtain resources. Those are underfunded too. But they're under, exactly. Um, mm. And a lot of the times more wealthier districts are the ones that have more funded, well-funded libraries. So it's like, it continues the cycle of power and privilege. Um, which I know we can't solve right now. <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave that up to economists, hopefully. Well, ironically, it, uh, just a quick point that you sort of raise in my mind is the fact, and I, I think it's one of the um, more disingenuous points that administrations have made that, oh, coronavirus has you know gut, made us have to gut our budgets and like we can't make ends meet and we have to cut funding. Uh, no you had these problems already you've had these problems for decades where you've been underfunded where you've been misallocating funds where you, you've not been putting in you know the, the resources where they need to be coronavirus is just exposing all of this and exasperating what already exists as these systemic issues exactly and it lays it out in front of lays it bare for everyone mm -hmm. yeah yeah but like yeah. you're saying it's being used also as an excuse by those who want to take away funds and, yep. you know, 
uh, I guess, redirect money to uh, yeah. maybe their own salaries. But-, but, but that's why it's disingenuous, because if you had a $50 million deficit before and you now have a $100 million deficit, you still clearly don't know what you're doing. It's just it's just ex- exasperating an already horribly run system that you've you've been implicit in perpetuating and making worse already for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, not to name any names. No, no, not naming names. But I look to the future and I think, well, what is what is our way out? I mean, and that's <laughs> that's I think what everyone is. You know, we're all in some way trying to engage with that, whether it be in our creative writing or academic writing or podcasting uh, videos like you're doing on YouTube. Mm -hmm. How can we work our way out of the cards that are being dealt right now? And I keep turning to maybe there's a way because it comes down to money most of the time financially. Is there a way for scholarship communities to be formed where there's a type of co-op experience you know i don't know what that looks like but um i keep thinking maybe people are going to be living in apartments together who work in a certain industry i don't know it's it takes creative minds though to think about this i guess is what i'm getting at and who better than creative writers and those Mm -hmm. who've been thinking of narratives well, what 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 Joe is correctly uh, honing in on in his own work is that it starts at home, yeah. right? If the the question is, can you take a, a a cadre of Saturday morning beach cleaners and politicize them, mm. and maybe that's already too ambitious a thing to to ask. Uh, Right, maybe these are people who are looking for a little bit of exercise and a little bit of of um, sense of sense of like having done something productive with their day. But you were all already saying that these are also people who are looking for direction, who are looking for meaning, Mm -hmm. and such people end up getting radicalized in negative directions all the time. Um, I, I mean, I, I really loved the movie Midsummer, oh, oh, that's because cool. of how it illustrates how you can be in a bad place in your life and looking for a little bit of direction and you find some people who give you love and attention and stuff like that. And that should be a, an uplifting story, but it's very much not. Mm-mm. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And everyone so should it's, read about Jim Jones. I think they should read about why people join cults. Exactly, exactly. So I'm saying people are going to find meaning in their lives. It just may be that the way they find the meaning in their lives is really damaging to the rest of us. Mm. So if you have a good thing going, um, that's worth that's worth a lot. Um, you were keeping people out of prisons. Now you're keeping people out of cults. How about that? There we go. <laughs> well, well, I don't know about that because the cult of beach clean is is uh, growing quite strong. Okay, so it's a so so it's a benevolent dictatorship. Well, that's those are the only ones I do, fortunately. <laughs> so tragic, tragic, right. more tragic words have never well, been spoken. At, right. At least we know what. At least we know what kind of hat a benevolent dictator wears. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> actually. So we've solved that problem. It's it's funny you say that. The other day I was. Uh, or a couple of weeks ago, I was cleaning out in Montauk, 
uh, which is at the end of Long Island for anybody who doesn't know. And um, this guy came up to me and I had passed a hat on the way because here's a quick rule of beach cleaning, a quick tip. If you're going down a stretch of beach that you're going to come back the same way, don't make the mistake of cleaning up everything on the way. And then you turn around and you realize you have a 25 pound bag to carry back a mile. You're better off hiking past all that trash, enjoying the hike, and then picking it up on your way back. If you're going, you're planning on going that same stretch. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, these, I learned. These are the expert tips. These are these are the experiences that I include in my videos, so you don't have to make these mistakes, right? Uh, but I passed this hat, and I was like, oh, I'll get it on the way back. Whatever. It was like a kind of like Gilligan's Island hat, and this guy was like wearing it when I came back and he was he just came up to me and he said, Oh, are you beach cleaning? I said, yes. He said, Oh, would you like this hat? I just found it. And he took it off his head and it was all covered in seaweed. And I was like, no, I'm good. Uh, like I was kind of freaked out. <laughs> he also had binoculars. I don't know what this guy was up to. Um, he may have found the binoculars as well. He may, I hope he fi- finds himself because he seemed out of it. Um, and, and that's coming from me of all people. Um, and I was like, no, I'm good. And he seemed really upset at me. Um, it almost and seems he just, like it was a paper doll. You know when the paper <laughs> dolls, you would put different things on them? Yeah. Well, it's he like put the, the hat back on, the seaweed hat back on, and he just kept walking. And I was like, uh, that's that's the hats for that that guy. That's that's a, a guy with a hat right there. So that's right. I don't have all the hats. Yeah. And if I see people around walking the uh, Joe Labriola shirts in Fort Jeff, then maybe you're going into the cult. Yeah, that that right. might be. People have suggested that, like doing uh, like merch type stuff, and I'm like, I'm not ready. I just no. I. It's... The thing that I think is really moving about this conversation is that every time we come back to, uh, every time we come back to, let's say writing or let's say beach cleaning or whatever, it becomes less and less clear which one we're talking about because mm. the the topics have started to converge. And so I do hope that we are helping our listeners, both of them, uh, find out. Um, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, find out a little bit more about, like, how to take something that's that's in their lives that they like to do and to combine it with something else, right? I mean, you you wouldn't be giving a talk about beach cleaning if you didn't have all of these pieces in your life that fit together in that way right we wouldn't be doing a podcast about grad student um issues and early phd issues and job market issues and all that stuff if we weren't already having these like hour long conversations and then we had the idea to record them and to invite a, a third interlocutor Mm-hmm. So that is, I mean, that that's that's hope right there. I I do think that slow change is possible, and I do think that if we keep coming around to the same things, yeah, and we're not we will... in isolation anymore. What's that? I was just saying we're not in isolation with these anxious thoughts. Like, right, right. At the very least, there's that. Yeah, yeah. I I think you're right too. It's, it's sort of. Um that's kind of a big point with like what I do um, in terms of beach cleaning advocacy. It's like a lot of it is about, I guess you could even call it destigmatizing um, it as an activity in the sense that like, 
it's it doesn't belong to just like oh only organizations or only big groups it has to be a big organized thing like you know well, a lot like of you said only scientists right only only scientists right like um this is something that you can take take ownership of and it is something that affects all of us you know like a lot of these issues it's like well yeah you might think because this group has direct experience with it and is you know it's sort of directly impacting them like what wh why should i care how does that influence me it's like no that is obviously connected to all of these you know how the whole thing works together right how the whole system functions together so i i think it's really cool to like you say have these conversations and sort of get more perspectives and and expose more people to them whether it's academic uh, or issues in academia um, or what i'm doing as an extension of of my work with uh, beach cleaning yeah and and you, if if you're saying what, how does that matter to me? It's that that's an attitude that has nothing to do with the information available. Because a person will say, why should I clean the beach? How does that impact me? And then they'll have fish for dinner that night and never see the connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, tragedy of the commons, essentially. Um, I mean, I'm I'm trying. So, as a as a as a concrete step in life. I'm trying to purge the word should from my vocabulary as much as possible because I just think that that word serves to, to, to lead to shame and um, self-pity. And I don't, I don't need that. I'm also trying to purge the phrase, what does that have to do with me from my vocabulary? Because, well, number one, that's, that's the first sin in the Bible for a reason. I like the Bible. I, I think it's got some, some some decent insight uh <laughs> there's some juicy parts yeah there's some oh yeah <laughs> some sodom and gomorrah parts. baby oh yeah that's where it's at i'm all about oh that God. we need we need to get we need to get these these reviews on the back cover i think we could really <laughs> boost their sales <laughs> yeah it's you know uh, there's some juicy parts good god andrew anyway so the those of you listening you can't see the evil look on his face it's really it's really troubling um anyway so right that i mean that's that's the first that's the first sin, the first sinner in the bible who who well, um says am i fine the second sinner if you want to be technical says am i my brother's keeper yes you are yes you fucking are so anyway um before i blow a gasket we should probably start winding this to a close yeah but i think but, yeah well do you have like a final question then that you want to pose adam how do i get my blood pressure back down uh you should enjoy you should go out and enjoy a nice relaxing just you know 20 minute beach clean that would probably do the trick that actually might do the trick i do live near a particularly hideous beach that those work really well and in fact one of the things that, like I was just saying about destigmatizing, because people will make excuses. They'll say, "Oh, I don't have time. I don't have gear. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to have to dedicate hours to doing this. I'm tired. I'm busy. I it's time to watch Netflix. I need a sandwich. Like all good reasons, right? Or excuses, uh, perhaps. But um, like one of the videos I did recently was beach cleaning with nothing. Like I just went to the beach with. I mean, I wore pants, but. 
Um, <laughs> other than other than well, that, pretty pretty much apparently, nothing. Apparently, you can find a pair of seaweed encrusted pants just on the beach and just put them on. You know, that's going to be uh, maybe when I have a few more subscribers, uh, I'll do that. But um, oh, I have some. Spray. I actually have some pretty nutty ideas for next year, but. Um, I went and I didn't have anything. I didn't even have a bag. And so what was the first thing I did? Found plenty of bags just looking around for after like 15, 20 minutes, you know, and I was able to get a ton of trash in those bags. So uh, that, that's, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole thing. You can go for five minutes and pick up some straws. You you don't even have to go that far. You can just think of it as a as a afternoon walk, an afternoon hike or whatever, and just pick stuff up as you see it. Yeah, well, I like that. Okay, I think you now have our uh, mission for everyone who's listening. And, <laughs> you know, even I think I'm going to be more aware of when I'm walking on my daily walks, even if there's trash that I see near me, well, always hand sanitize. That's my. Oh, yeah. Be, neurotic, be there. No, no, no. I bring hand sanitizer with me on every beach clean, except for that. I think even on that no gear one I brought, because I'm like, I, I got to be safe, you know, um, in, in that regard. But yeah, uh, always bring hand to be a cowboy. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to be a trash boy. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> so I always bring hand sanitizer. And um, even if you don't live near the beach, um, we really don't know how much plastic pollution comes from the beach versus inland. But a lot of people suspect that it's more comes from inland runoff, from storm drains, from rivers, streams, cliff sides, um, parking lots. Like it's not people actually leaving garbage on the beach. Um, people, you know, throwing stuff overboard, overboard in the ocean, obviously, too. But a lot of it starts from just street side trash. So even if you're just in your neighborhood and you have trash around you, I mean, again, there are those bigger solutions that we need to reduce all of that, but um, it does make a slight difference, which again, adds up to larger differences. Yeah. Well, I think you've convinced me now to go out with gloves and a little bag during my walk today and see if I find anything. Uh, on my hey, and, and I'll, I'll let you know, I'll keep you posted uh, about beach clean events coming up because yeah. there should be some, uh, some pretty soon actually in the I'll next couple of weeks. With everyone. Yeah, yeah if, definitely. If you have if you have a um if you have a place where you announce that sort of thing, we'll put it underneath the recording, and then everybody can be can be kept up to date. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Yeah. Well, this was a wonderful interview, and thanks so much, Joe, for joining us. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. This was uh this was really fun. Yeah, real pleasure talking to you. Yep. Yeah, and we look forward to our listeners hearing from you know more creative minds because everyone who's on here dowsing creative realms in some fashion. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone, please remember to um, do all the podcast things like subscribing and so on. And also leave us messages. Too. Leave us messages. We love getting mail and we've got, we've gotten a few and we always squee a little bit each time. <laughs> and, um, and they, they really do influence the direction of our, of our show. So if you want to have some sense of ownership over this podcast, we want that too. We want, we want to bring on guests that you will find interesting. We want to explore sides of Andrew's dark and frightening personality that you'll find interesting. Um, and, 
And that's so. So we are we are responsive to feedback. We're a new podcast. You could you can really um, you can really stage a coup just by writing us the right letter. Yeah, yeah, and we respond to everyone. So we do. Um, oh, and you can join our Facebook group, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, which we're trying that's right. to end right now too. So that's right. Okay. Well, goodbye for now, everyone.